Well, it's an exciting day today. We get to start a brand new series in the Gospel of John. We might take the odd short break over the next year or two to look at other smaller books from time to time, but this will be our bread and butter for a good while to come. So let's come hungrily to chapter 1 and verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one ever has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. While we live In a world of incessant chatter, words stream past us, texts, tweets, lulls, streams of thought as we awkwardly try to fill the silence, endless posters nagging us to wash our hands and wear our masks, trivial words, traumatic words, the odd truly significant word. Human beings like to fill the air with words. And only very occasionally do we experience something that leaves us utterly silent. They say it happens to you the first time you stare out of the window from a shuttle and see planet Earth from space. That is the sort of experience which strips you bare, leaves you full of wonder and empty of words. I guess most of us will never experience that, but there are others holding a newborn baby for the first time, standing 
on the side of the Niagara Falls and feeling the sheer force of the water as it's pulverised against the rock into a billion shards. And reading this prologue to John's Gospel, surely this is one of those events. We read here of one word who is utterly different to all the trivial words that fill our week. And what we read about him is so staggering and majestic that the right response is to be quiet for a moment and stand before it in awe. Which is a problem, really, because my job now is to speak about it. But if we're going to give ourselves to this gospel together for the next year or more of Sundays, then we'd better start off right. And that means, first of all, acknowledging that John has introduced us to his book in a profoundly wonderful, arresting way. Every word here is short and simple. There's no complicated Greek, but the theology takes us right to the heart of all reality. This is the earliest story of the Bible. It echoes Genesis 1, but it's taking us back even further, isn't it, to what Augustine called the beginning with no beginning. And John is saying that if we want to understand how to read his gospel, we need to begin with what he says here about an eternal father and his eternal son. Now I say that because lots of us here have been in Bible teaching churches for many years now, and John's gospel is one we might feel we've got a handle on. Sure, there's a lot of detail that's a bit hazy, a lot of long repetitive passages about the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but the basic point is all pretty straightforward, right? This is a book to persuade our friends to become Christian. And we say that because it's drummed into us that for John's Gospel, we don't start with chapter one. Yes, these are nice words, but anyone who knows what he's doing with the Bible starts with chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Because that's where John tells us explicitly the thing that as Bible readers, we most urgently need to discover his author's purpose. I've written about these things, these signs, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Tick. Got it. Those how to read the Bible talks almost write themselves, don't they? And certainly that simple purpose fits a lot of the data. John is certainly a book full of evidence and testimony and signs. There's certainly a big stress, at least in the first half of the book, on people seeing that evidence and either believing in or rejecting Jesus. And John certainly cares very deeply that all his readers have and hold on to life in Jesus' name. But if that's all John is doing here, well, why does he give us such a big book to do it with? Why does he spend so long drawing out theological truths from just a handful of stories? We looked at Mark together a few years ago, there we could cover a whole load of miracles and every sermon it was bang, bang, bang. John could not be more different. 
He chooses far fewer miracles with almost no overlap and often will have to give several sermons to each one. Why, if he's only writing this for your non-Christian friend down the road, does John assume that they are so deeply familiar with the Bible? He assumes a lot of his readers will be steeped in the Old Testament. He assumes, I think, that we know the Jesus story pretty well. We know who the disciples are. We know how it's going to end. John is one of the last New Testament books to be published. Paul and Luke and others have done a lot of theology by now. Almost certainly, many of John's readers will have read another gospel before they read his. So what if the you who he wants to believe there at the end of the book isn't your non-Christian neighbour, but you, the one who spent your whole adult life teaching Sunday school? Finally, I wonder if you've often felt it just sounds so cold and mechanical and boring when people present John as a simple evangelistic tract. This is a book crammed full of relationship and trinity and love. Well, I suspect it might be what happens if we don't let John introduce us to his book his way. Let me illustrate. I have a pair of beautifully house-proud, hospitable American in-laws. They live in one of those beautiful American homes which my mother-in-law pours her heart and soul into making welcoming. And there are two ways you can get into that house. You could break into the garage and come in through the utility room. It's a good room. It's very functional, just like that verse in chapter 20. There's a lovely big American washer-dryer. You would certainly learn something about how this house works. But is it how my mother-in-law would want to introduce you to her home? Somehow I don't think so. At the front, there's a big open hallway, a polished floor, a place to put your shoes, pictures of the family, and everything in that room has been designed to draw you in, to welcome you. So what happens then if we come to John's gospel through the front door? Clearly, he's put a lot of care into this. Every big theme of the book is somehow woven in. So maybe this is just as important, even more important, in telling us what his book is meant to do. What does John think we need to know if we're going to understand his gospel? It's that at the heart of all reality is God with God. Love eternal. Look how carefully this prologue is shaped. It ends in verse 18, just how it begins, with the eternal love and warmth of God the Trinity, an eternal son who belongs, if we read verse 18 literally, in the bosom of the Father. That word side in our translations is pathetically British and cold. This is intimate. God with God. And as we move in from the outside down into the middle of this prologue, we find that this God has come down 
to share that love of his father with his people. The shape of this introduction then mirrors the central theme of the whole book. Here is a son sent from the father down to us, who before long will return to his father's side through the cross. But he's come to bring us back with him. John's introduction is telling us that his gospel is a love story. Mark, if you can remember back, was an exodus story. The whole thing was framed around that ancient rescue, a journey from the wilderness to Jerusalem through the cross. Mark was an exodus story. John is a love story. He's doing a different thing. He's telling us of an eternal son sent by the father into a dark and estranged world to reclaim his own. And whether we are brand new to Christianity or God-fearing Greeks or religious Jews steeped in our Bibles, this is how he wants us to listen to Jesus on the pages ahead, with our breath taken away by what he claims here. To understand Jesus, he has to tell us about love eternal, love shared, and love known. First verses 1 to 5, love eternal. At the heart of all reality, behind time and behind space, there is God with God. Someone, and he is a someone, verse 2, not a something, someone called the Word. In some sense, this word is distinct from God. To be with God doesn't just mean they coexist in the same place. It implies relationship. They're distinct. And yet, in every sense, he is one with God. Co-eternal. There never was a time when this word wasn't there. Co-equal, thus one. One was the other. And we just have no illustration at all in our finite world to explain how that works exactly. But John does give us two safe ways to speak about who this God with God is. Both of which tell us that all the godness of God flows completely from one to the other. They share the same divine nature in its entirety. First, we can think of him as God's word, God's voice. And secondly, we can think of him as God's son. In verse 14, he's described as God's only one, his son in an absolutely unique, one-of-a-kind kind of way. He is as close to the father, verse 18, as it's possible to be, held right to his breast, right from eternity in the very being of God, there was perfect, content, intimate love. And verse 4, in his very being, there was life. Both father and son, we're told later on, have life in themselves. Self-contained, never depleted life. This triune God doesn't need anything outside of himself. And yet, nevertheless, verse 3, through this word, this son, this voice, 
God reaches out beyond himself. Through the sun, he creates everything that is you, your fingerprints, the atoms they're made from. All of it was spoken into being by God the Son. He bubbles up with life in himself, verse 4, and so he's the source of all life. Our life flows from him. So before we read another line, just stop and think what that means. The one we're going to meet on these pages, the giver of life, is the one you owe your very existence to. If he is our maker, then this word is not like any other. He commands our absolute attention. His voice is the one you were wired to respond to. The life flowing from him, verse 4, is the light of men. In other words, unless we know his life, we are stumbling, blind in the dark. Like plants shut in a dark room, desperately reaching and reaching up and growing yellow and pale as they gasp for some sunlight. Suddenly in verse 5, do you notice that note of threat? There is light, but there's also darkness. There's a world that is estranged from this God so full of light and life and love. A world that tries in vain to overcome his light. But wonderfully, the voice that we are gasping to hear is speaking to us in Jesus, shining into the darkness. So the light we need as human beings doesn't come to us from ancient wisdom. It doesn't come to us through our own Modern, progressive values, it doesn't come from exploring the world or seeking out other cultures. No, it has to reach down to us from outside. Yes, this idea of the logos, the word, is something all sorts of Greek philosophies dabbled with, but John is claiming it for his own. And he's telling us right from the start that the light and life we gasp for comes from the Son of God who shone into this world in the person of Jesus. God speaking God, love eternal, who spilled out into time. And that's the next thing that John shows us in verses 6 to 13, love shared. This God with God behind time, the eternal Son, is sent into the world to reclaim ruined sinners for his father. He is God sent to search through the darkness. You get such a jolt, don't you, in verse 6. It's a little like the moment in the movies when a starship drops out of warp speed and suddenly all the planets appear again. We've been looking behind time itself, this cosmic family picture of the eternal God and It's as if it's suddenly photobombed by John the Baptist. Oh, verse 6, there was also this bloke sent from God called John. And you've got to ask, how on earth does he manage to sneak into the picture here of all places? I mean, yes, he's a big figure, one of the few who gets a part in all four of the Gospels. But verse 6, right as we're tucking into the Trinity and the Incarnation, 
clearly he is going to play a major role in this book. So much so that John the author never even names himself. When you see a John, he means this John. And in this book, he's never called John the Baptist. He's John the Witness. See how that's repeated three times in verses seven and eight? So he steps right out onto this stage of cosmic history, just as the drama is getting going. And he will have a pivotal role in showing us who Jesus is, verse 7, and how we ought to respond to him. In fact, in many ways, the whole first half of the book is shaped around what John the Witness is going to tell us about Jesus. His ministry doesn't get closed off until the end of chapter 10, and we're told there that everything we've seen up to that point in the book has been demonstrating how John's testimony about Jesus was true. So John isn't just one more random prophet squeezed into the story. In a moment, he'll present himself as the final prophet, the climactic prophet of all Israel's history. When God the Son comes into the world, you see, he comes to a particular people at a particular point in time as the climax of a particular story. And his coming, this maker entering the story, that is a moment that bends all of history. Nothing will ever look the same. You see that even more in verse 9. This God coming into the world is the true light. It's a phrase we'll keep on hearing, the true this, the true that. All along, this story promised light to people walking in darkness. Think of that pillar of fire, for example, that used to represent God's presence with his people. Well, now, says John, the true light is here, the promised light. And that means things change for everyone, verse 9. Jesus shines a kind of light that demands a response from all of us. John doesn't mean there that he shone light into every human being's heart as if all of us were suddenly enlightened. What he means is that Jesus coming into the world shone light onto every human being. Objective, external light. Not just Israel, but the whole world looks different. Now that he's come into the story, he's exposing, isn't he, for every single human being. Because now that Christ is a reality in the story, there are only two ways we can respond to him, and both of them play out right here. Four times John repeats this phrase, the world, the world, the world, the world. It's like a kind of drumbeat helping us feel the drama and solemnity of this eternal God coming down to us in love. And then to feel the tragedy and the ugliness of what happens next. The world he made didn't know him. And the people, the particular people that he had loved from the very start of this particular story. The people God had prepared for this moment through 4,000 years of grace didn't receive him. 
just put yourself in the shoes for a moment of someone who spent three years now without their family. Major life events have come and gone, loved ones marry, have babies, die. And then at last Christmas comes and you get to see the ones who've talked incessantly about how much they love you, how much they've missed you. The mistletoe's hanging, the fire is lit, the champagne glasses are ready. But when you walk through the door at last, they pretend they can't even see you. How could it be, how could it be that human beings faced with the one we were made to know and love didn't welcome him, didn't acknowledge him? Well, it's not because he was somehow distant and remote, quite the opposite. The theologian Hermann Ridderbos puts it well, the world did not know him, not because he was a stranger, but because it was estranged. The world in this book means humanity estranged from and hostile to the God who made and loves us. We had turned away from this God of light and life and love, so he sent his son to come searching through the darkness like a floodlight to find us. And verse 12 gives us the only other response to his coming. We can turn further away or we can receive him. And he will draw us right into the family of life and love that he has enjoyed with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. Do you see then how the whole shape of this prologue is heading towards that central verse, verse 12. He has come right down from the Father's breast to share his Father with us. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God. And just to make sure we don't think there's some spark of goodness in us that gets us there, we have verse 13, the one early glance in this prologue at the work of the Spirit. How are we born into the family of God? Well, not by being born into good religious blood, not by striving nobly towards the truth, not by any human choice, but by the will of the Father, who sent his Son into this dark, estranged world to come and find us. Verses 10 to 12 divide all of humanity into two, don't they? Tragedy or grace. And they also divide this whole book in two. The first half of the gospel will show us verses 10 and 11. Jesus sent to the world. Chapters 1 to 12 will tell us about his public ministry centred on his own people in Jerusalem primarily where the key words will be words like faith and believe. And the key response will be tragic, ugly rejection. And then the second half of the gospel is going to show us verse 12. As Jesus withdraws and spends his time with those who received him, his own, the ones he came to claim gets redefined, it becomes a much tighter group. 
And the language changes from words like belief to words like love. Love shared. And then finally, verses 14 to 18, love known. You really can know him. This word, this love eternal became flesh. He took on our real human stuff. It's a shocking word, almost crude. We fight a losing battle with our kids. We're constantly telling them they don't need to announce to the whole table that they're going to the toilet. Just say Lou, darling. Just say Lou. That's the polite English way. Just say Lou. We don't need to know the details. Well, as the scholar Leon Morris points out, John does not do the polite English thing. He doesn't say the word became man. He doesn't say the word assumed a body. He says the word became flesh. Real, sweating, excreting, respiring, bleeding flesh. Precisely so that one day he could bleed as one of us. And that real, visible, human stuff dwelt among us so that other real human beings were able to know him just as you know me. And those people who did get to know him, verse 14, they saw in that flesh, and they were convinced that they saw, something utterly staggering. They saw the God of all glory and grace. If you know one bit of Greek Bible trivia about this passage, it's probably that the word dwelt there in verse 14. He dwelt among us. That rings big Old Testament bells. Famously, it means something like he pitched a tent, he tabernacled among us. And that is the big clue as to what's going on in this final section. You see, it's full of other big Bible words. The word glory comes twice. That's another big Exodus word, isn't it? The tabernacle was where God dwelt with his people. It was the place where heaven kissed earth in the Old Testament. It was filled with God's glory. And it was all just a shadow of what happened here. Then there's another pair of massive Bible words, and this time it's Hebrew Bible trivia. If there's one Old Testament word every Christian ought to know, what would it be, do you think? By the way, you should never, ever get a Hebrew tattoo. They always go wrong. But if I was to get one in some desperate midlife crisis, this is the one you're allowed. Chesev. The word for God's steadfast love. The great word the covenant God is known by in the Hebrew Old Testament. And time and again, it gets paired with a second word, faithfulness. The God of the Bible is filled with steadfast love and faithfulness. Chesed wa emeth. Or in the Greek version, grace and truth. It's repeated again, just to make sure we've got it in verse 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Covenant faithfulness. What do John and the apostles, the we of verse 14, what do they see in Jesus Christ? They see a man so 
full of grace and truth, that he is intensely glorious, more wonderful than anyone else they had ever encountered. He is categorically different in his glory to any human being, a glory so profound that it proved to them beyond doubt that this was the only son from the Father, the very God of glory and grace, the whole story of Israel had been pointing towards. Then we get another interruption from John the Witness. He cries out in excitement, just like an Old Testament prophet. And he's telling us the same thing, isn't he? This one, this man, he is the fulfillment of every promise God has ever made. He was born after me, but he ranks way before me. He always was. And so all the glory and grace we were ever promised, verse 16, it overflows from him. Isn't that wonderful language? Grace upon grace flows out of Christ's fullness. Just as life and light were pictured flowing out of his divine nature up at the start. For four millennia, Israel got glimpses of God's grace and glory, but only glimpses. In the tabernacle and the temple, there was a glimpse of the God who would come close to sinful people, but just a glimpse. Moses begged to see him, he begged, and then he had to hide in terror behind a rock, remember? While God passed by and spoke about himself. And he heard about a God of grace and truth. Well, what about the law, verse 17? The law gave us a wonderful glimpse of his character, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his love. But the God they were glimpsing through all that is the God that now they could know face to face. And at last, verse 17, John tells us his name, Jesus Christ, the one who history and eternity revolve around. No one ever has seen God, but now the only God, God with God, the God who belongs at the Father's breast, has made him known. Who better could tell us what God is like than God himself? He doesn't just tell us stuff about him. Jesus wants us to know him fully. It's the word that we get exegesis from. Think of how we all sit here Sunday by Sunday, grappling together with all our hearts and minds to exegete the Bible. Well, says John, Jesus came to exegete the Father so that you could all grapple with him with all your hearts and minds to know him. You must have heard friends saying something like, I'd like to think God is like this. And you know, don't you, when you hear that, that they are just groping hopelessly in the dark, making pronouncements about someone we can't possibly know. Someone who dwells outside of time, hermetically, sealed off from our senses and our finite minds until he speaks. Well, Jesus is the end of all that. He's the end of 
I'd like to think. It's as if, while we were groping blindly in the pitch blackness of this world, trying to imagine our own fairy tale versions of what there was on the outside, someone on the other side of eternity just threw on a light switch, and we saw the Father with a human face. Do you see then how this prologue is meant to draw us in to Jesus? He is God, preaching God, love eternal, speaking to you. John is saying, spend time with him. Listen to his voice. Be filled with wondering what we saw in him and have confidence in who he is and what only he could possibly show you. Maybe we feel like some fringe minority right now, clinging on to a faith that is weak and discredited, something that puts us right on the edge of respectable society. John is saying, look who Jesus is. You can trust what he tells you, trust him, abide with him. And actually you are drawn in as close to the center as close to the heart of all reality as it's possible to be. And if you want to see that in action, just look at where John himself ends up as his story draws to a close. Turn with me as we finish to chapter 13. John chapter 13 and look down at verse 23. Jesus is about to face the hatred and rejection of the world in all its brutality. His disciples are about to become as fringe and marginalised and discredited as you could imagine. And where is John? One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' breast. The very same phrase the prologue ends with. John has been drawn in by Christ, right to the place where Jesus was as this story began. And that is precisely what he wants for you and for me. For this Jesus, sent by the Father into our darkness, to draw his own into the Father's love. Well, let's bow our heads. Gracious Father, who in love we will never deserve and at a cost we could never fathom, sent your Son to be one of us so that we could know you and know the love of heaven. Help us, we pray, to receive all that you teach us about him with awe and wonder, and confidence, and love. Would each of us be persuaded more deeply to trust in the name of Jesus, in all that he is, and all that he has done, so that we would know that all he shows us about you is deeply true, and deeply wonderful, and deeply worth giving the rest of our lives for. 
for we ask it to the praise of his name. Amen.